passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. You can follow in your own bulletin or in your own Bible. Luke chapter 19, beginning in the 28th verse. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that it is God-breathed and given for your people for our sanctification. We ask, Lord God, that you would apply it to our hearts this morning. We ask that you would work it into our souls, giving us assurance, showing us our need for you, revealing more of your own character, and causing us to glorify you, our God and our Redeemer. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Let me just remind you, if you're looking for more room, there's a special needs area out here. There's an overflow room back here, and the sermon is on a television back there so you can see and hear if you need more spacing or to socially distance yourself a little bit. That's possible back here. There are also two deacons on duty always. Tim Daly and Ryan White are on duty today if you need help. They'll be in the hallways and wandering around as you need them. Have you ever wondered what is the purpose of preaching? What's the purpose of preaching? You know, after all, God calls us together. He commands us to gather each week. He calls from among us preachers and elders who are called to exegete the Word, to preach it, to apply it to our hearts, and He tells us to do this week in and week out, not for weeks or months, for our entire lives, to orient the Lord's Day around the preaching of the Word. So have you ever wondered what is the purpose of preaching? Many years ago, 
I was on a pastoral staff, and there was an individual who was leaving the church. They came to meet with the pastors, and we asked them, well, why are you leaving the church? And they said, well, it's pretty simple. It's because of the preaching. We said, please do elaborate. And they said, well, the, the preaching isn't really hitting home. I, I leave Sunday morning, and I don't know what I should be doing. I need a list of things that I should do. I feel like there should be takeaways. Thank God that preaching isn't primarily about what we should be doing, okay? It's not the purpose of preaching. It's not the design of God's Word. The design of God's Word and the primary purpose of preaching is to bring glory to God by showing us more of Him and showing us more of our need for Him, okay? That's the purpose of preaching. That's why we gather each week. That's why we spend 20 to 30 minutes, sometimes more than 30 minutes, hearing the preaching of God's Word, okay? And that happens in a number of ways. It happens as our sin is exposed. It happens as we see the intricacies of creation. And sometimes it happens, as it does in this passage this morning, when we see the well-laid plans of God from before the foundation of the earth coming to fruition. And we, and the audience that's with Jesus at this moment, stand back in awe, and we can't help but glorify our God, and to praise Him for the things that our eyes see and our ears hear. The passage this morning is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's recorded in all four Gospels, which means we know it's important. It's all important, of course. But it's recorded in all four Gospels, and it is that moment where Jesus, coming from Jericho, goes through Bethpage and Bethany, over the Mount of Olives, and down into Jerusalem. And as we look at it this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this passage through the lens of the Old Testament prophets, okay? Because this is the culmination of a number of different Old Testament prophecies. And we're going to look at this in the shoes of those who are there with Jesus. You know why? Because as, as we look at this through their lens, we're going to feel their suspense. We're going to experience their surprise. We're going to stand in awe with them as they realize thousands of years of prophecy are being fulfilled in their midst. And you know what? It will make sense of the things they do, and it will make sense of the response of the Pharisees in this passage as we look at the triumphal entry of Christ. So let me first ask you, this morning you're going to have to be active with your Bibles. Let me first ask you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 11. Okay, Ezekiel, if you're wondering, okay, where is that at? It's definitely in the Old Testament. It is one of the major prophets after most of the major prophets right before the minor prophets, okay? So you've got the Daniels and you've got the Jeremiahs and you've got the Isaiahs, but before you get to the ones you don't know, the 12 that are kind of obscure, there is Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 11. And we're going to talk about this sort of prophetic witness as the Olivet prophecies, okay? The prophecies of the Mount of Olives. In Ezekiel chapter 11, let's begin in verse 19. This is the prophet Ezekiel receiving a vision from God. The vision is for the exiles who are waiting to be redeemed, and Ezekiel now shares what the Lord has given him, the word of God through the mouth of Ezekiel, beginning in verse 19. God says, and I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. 
that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Okay, so let's stop and pause for a minute. We know through the mouths of the New Testament writers that this is a prophecy that is being fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. That as Christ comes and the Holy Spirit is given, the hearts of stone are taken, the hearts of, uh, they're replaced with hearts of flesh. This is made possible by the body and blood of Christ, that these people are now redeemed and they are given this heart to follow the Lord God, okay? So these things are being fulfilled in the midst of the people as Christ walks, lives, dies, and is resurrected. Now listen to how Ezekiel continues this prophecy. He says he sees this vision, then the cherubim lifted up their wings, those are angels, lifting up their wings with wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So the glory of God is the manifestation of His presence. It is the depiction of God for us, okay? So the glory of God went up from the midst of the city. In verse 23, the glory of God went up from the midst of the city, and it stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. Now listen, okay? This is not the first time in prophetic witness that the Mount of Olives is mentioned. You heard it, the, city, the mountain on the east side of the city. This is the Mount of Olives, okay? It, it's been mentioned at least two other times by two other prophets, always in connection with the glory of the Lord, either going up or coming down from heaven, okay? So there is the glory of the Lord. The, Ezekiel says at this moment, when the hearts are being replaced with the heart of flesh, the glory of the Lord went up from our midst and it went to the, uh, the mountain on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. That is the Mount of Olives, okay? Ezekiel sees in his vision the glory of God, the very presence of the living God, coming and going from the Mount of Olives, descending and ascending, okay? And the other prophets will speak about that glory of God coming and going from the Mount of Olives. Fast forward to our passage this morning. This is not the first mention of the Mount of Olives in the life of Jesus. Of course it's not. Mount of Olives has already been mentioned. It will be mentioned again. For instance, in Acts chapter 1, what happens there? Jesus, speaking to his disciples, gives them all that they're to do. And then what does he do? He ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is where the Garden of Gethsemane was. Jesus will later go to the Garden on the Mount of Olives. A lot happens on the Mount of Olives. Okay? So I want you to hold that prophetic witness in your mind just for a second. Keep it in the back of your mind. The Bible says a lot about the Mount of Olives, the glory of the Lord coming and going. Okay? I just want you to feel what the people are feeling when Jesus comes down the mountain. All right? So hold that in the back of your mind. Now let's go to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9. And if you're saying, well, I didn't know where Ezekiel was, then you probably likely don't know where Zechariah is either. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets at the end of the minor prophets. That is, towards the end of the Old Testament, right before Matthew, is Malachi, and before him is Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, okay? This is another vision God gives to the prophet Zechariah. If that vision of Ezekiel we could call the Olivet prophecies, okay, These, this is the donkey prophecies, the, the, the foal, the cult prophecies. Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is a, a, it's a strange prophecy to me, okay? Because the description of the coming of the Lord in Zechariah chapter 9 is with power and might. Did you hear some of the phrases that were used, okay? Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. The cutting off of the chariots and the war horses. The bringing of peace by force and power. It is a powerful prophecy. And in the midst of this powerful prophecy, Zechariah says this, okay? It's a weird line. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It seems almost counterintuitive to everything that he's just described. I would expect that king coming on a chariot with flaming arrows, ready to defeat the enemy, but he comes humble on the colt, the foal of a donkey. I was trying to think, how would we compare this to our day? It's kind of like saying, here comes the king, mighty as he with all this power, and he's going to be coming, driving a little red cabriolet, okay? convertible cabriolet. It doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. Okay? It doesn't go together if not for the fact that this is the prophetic witness of God for these things would come to pass. And this is evidence. I, I told you in every gospel the triumphal entry of Jesus is recorded. In Matthew 25, when Matthew is recording the triumphal entry, he says, these things came to pass that the voice of the prophet might be fulfilled. Okay? that Jesus would come humble and low on the colt, the foal, all right? And these things you can see in the passage we read this morning. For it says, beginning in verse 30, Jesus says, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tie. Now, that's interesting, a colt, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And then they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. You see, there's the fulfillment of the prophecy. Okay? It's happening in their midst. So we have two prophecies. Hundreds of years earlier, we have the Olivet prophecy. We have the prophecy of the, the Messiah coming humble and low on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now let's look at one other stream of prophetic witness. Turn to Psalm chapter 118. Go backwards from the prophets to the middle of the Old Testament. You'll find Psalm chapter 118. It is the portion, a portion of this we read during the Old Testament reading this morning. Let me direct your attention to the 17th verse, okay? Psalm chapter 118 is one of the most beautiful articulate descriptions of the steadfast love of the Lord, okay? Over and over again, it's repeated. And the psalmist says, you will not forsake me. You will not leave me. I know, for you are my God and you are steadfast. And then the psalmist says these words in verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely 
but he has not given me over to death. Okay? I know it's a small portion of Psalm 118, but it goes in line with all the Old Testament prophets, the life-giving Messiah, and you are there witnessing Jesus. Here he comes through Bethpage, through Bethany, onto the Mount of Olives, down the Mount of Olives, into Jerusalem. He comes having brought Lazarus back to life, giving life to men. He comes requesting the colt, the foal, riding on this donkey into Jerusalem, and he comes bearing witness of everything that he will now do in the city of Jerusalem. How would you have felt? I know how I would have felt. This is it. This is everything we've been waiting on. It's the fulfillment of that. It's the fulfillment of this. It's the fulfillment of that. It's the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy. Here it is in our midst. It is happening. It is real. It is manifest before our very eyes. I would have been exuberant. Okay? It's the feeling these people are feeling as, as they witness Jesus now coming into the city of Jerusalem down off the Mount of Olives. And because of that, the people begin to issue a proclamation, okay? That's the second point in the bulletin, the proclamation of the king. What do the people begin to do? What do they begin to say? Look at verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, the, the people having realized what was unfolding before their eyes, they stood in awe, they stood in amazement, and they begin to praise and glorify God as Verse 37 says, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, the raising of Lazarus, the giving of the colt, the foal, the coming down off the Mount of Olives, every miracle of the Lord, and the entrance into the city, the triumphal entrance. They began to rejoice and to praise God. But do you know what is interesting? Okay? This is not just a generic praise. It's not just some general rejoicing, these witnesses, those who were there with Jesus, they knew the Scriptures. Okay, turn back to Psalm 118. Turn back to Psalm 118. The psalm that began with the steadfast love of the Lord, which talked about the, the life-giving power of the Messiah. If you flip down to verse 25, Actually, begin in verse 22. The psalmist says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You see that? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's not an oft-repeated phrase in the Old Testament. Okay? It's unique to the psalmist. There in Psalm 118, the fulfillment of prophecy. The, the prophecy is being laid out 
by the psalmist. And he says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now the people witnessing the unfolding of these events, they say in the, in the face of Jesus, before the crowd, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They realized this was the fulfillment of the prophetic witness. They realized everything that they had been waiting on for thousands of years was being fulfilled in their midst, and they stood again in awe, in amazement, and it moved them to glorify the Lord, to bring praise to their God, to honor Him, and to glorify His holy name. Now, you know what? The crowd, the disciples, they knew the prophetic witness, but someone else also knew this prophetic witness. The Pharisees knew it, didn't they? It's obvious that they knew it. And the Pharisees who knew the prophetic witness of God about the Mount of Olives and the coal, the fault, the donkey, and the life-giving power that the Messiah would have, the, the Pharisees who knew all of this on one hand, and they witnessed the work of Christ on the other hand, they could not put two and two together, could they? The blindness of their heart, their stubbornness of sin, their refusal to acknowledge the, the personal uh, affliction they experienced when Jesus took the spotlight and not them. I don't know what all it was that was going on in their heart, but they could not take the prophetic witness and realize its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And so what do they say to Jesus? They say to him, tell them to be quiet. Stop it, right? And in their world, that makes complete sense, doesn't it? The, the prophetic witness of the coming Messiah, and here's this Jesus, and the people are saying this is the fulfillment of prophecy, and either that's true or it's not true, and if it's not true, they better be quiet, because this is heretical. It's, it's as, as C.S. Lewis said, right? Jesus is either Lord, lunatic, or liar. The Pharisees here looking at Jesus, they're perceiving him as a liar. This is not true. Tell them to stop. They're, they're spreading gossip do not let them keep speaking, Jesus, right? They could not see the fulfillment of the prophetic witness. And then what does Jesus say? I think when we read this, we've got to stop and reflect. Because this is, for me, is one of my favorite lines of the entire gospel of Luke. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples in verse 39. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What does that mean? If you Pharisees are going to shut up the people, and if you would prevent them from speaking the praises of God and from glorifying the Messiah and from declaring his witness, if you were to do that, the very stones would cry out. And if not the stones, then the trees. And if not the trees, then the mountains. If not the mountains, then the seas. They would declare the praises of their creator. You see, the, the beauty of this is that the the hand that created, the voice that spoke into existence, that made everything that is and everything that exists, if he so desired, could take inanimate objects and give them a voice to declare his praises. That if the voice of man would remain silent, the Lord Jesus would be praised and glorified and honored. If through the dust, or the concrete sidewalks, the paved streets, or the oceans, or the seas, or anything and all of creation. He will be glorified. 
and he will be witnessed to. That's what he's saying to the Pharisees. This is going to happen one way or another. Silence them if you will, but you have no power to thwart the plans, the majesty, and the glory of God through his son, Jesus Christ. I think that's important for us, you know, because we often can view ourselves as essential to the plans of God, right? God needs us, and we're the heroes of the story. So whether it's our evangelism or our mercy ministry or our careers or our professions or our preaching or our teaching or the work that we do, God really needs us. And that's how we get ourselves hyped up for it, don't we? If we don't do it, who's going to do it? Nobody's going to. we got to do it. It's up to us. And there are lots of Christian traditions where that is, the, that is the way to motivate people, isn't it? Okay? But the reality is God doesn't need us. Amen. You can say amen. That's great. I love it. Amen. God doesn't need us. It is not a relationship of need. God doesn't need us. It's a relationship of affection and love. He has desired to demonstrate his mercy to objects of wrath that we might have the opportunity, the privilege of glorifying him, of honoring his holy name. God doesn't need us. Without us, the rocks will testify. The earth will declare its praises. This past week in staff meeting, we were looking at this passage, and somebody said, oh, that's what uh, angels we have heard on high means when it says the mountains echoing in reply, their joyous strains. That's what it means. That's exactly what it means. The earth declares the glory of her creator. And if not the voices of men, the earth will. Okay? So here's another encouragement for you. Do you look at the world around you and do you have some sort of dread? What's going to happen with tomorrow's tomorrow? What's the world of our children going to be like? What's going to happen if the, the witness of Christians kind of dissipates and there's no Christians in government, there's no Christian voices in China or Russia? What's going to happen if that happens? Oh, you of little faith. If these were silent, the rocks would cry out. And the Lord God will have a witness in this world. And that witness will be heard and hearts will be changed. And the king will reign and we will reign with him. That's what this passage is all about. That's why we're moved to glorify the Lord. Okay? And here's what I want to leave you with. Not my words. I couldn't put it this well. I want to leave you with the words of Matthew Henry. This is what Matthew Henry said about this passage. It was one of the most influential and monumental in Matthew Henry's ministry. So listen to what he says. He says, whether men praise Christ or not, he will and shall and must be praised. If these should hold their peace and not speak the praises of the Messiah's kingdom, the stones would immediately cry out, rather than that Christ should not be praised. This was, in effect, literally fulfilled when upon men's reviling Christ upon the cross, instead of praising him like they ought, and his own disciples sinking into profound silence, the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Pharisees would silence the praises of Christ, but they cannot gain their point. For as God can out of stones raise up children unto Abraham, so he can out of the mouths of those children 
perfect his praises. That's the purpose of preaching. It's the purpose for gathering together. That's the purpose of God's creating, of his calling. It's the purpose of Christ's coming, of his dying, of his resurrection. It's why we gather each Sunday morning to perfect his praises. So then, let us continue to praise him together, for he deserves our praise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, come before you this morning, Lord God, and we thank you for the prophetic witness of Ezekiel, of Zechariah, of the psalmist. We thank you for the prophetic witness of all the prophets who you spoke through as your mouthpiece, giving your revelation of the coming Messiah that when we could witness the fulfillment of prophecy, we could simply stand in awe, glorifying your name and saying, you are a God who deserves worship. May our hearts be moved to see the treasures of your word, the beauty of your character, the majesty of your person, and the glory of your saving work that we might day in and day out, every minute of our lives, declare your praises. For you, our Lord and our God, are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. We thank you through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.